you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. We had a bit of a break, but I have a really exciting podcast today. I'm so I'm, I'm quite, I think it's one of the most important ones I've done in the past year. And I think it 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 does um, fit very well the theme of trying to see how to help the healthcare system, especially in Canada, because we're we're struggling. And today we'll be talking about AI, but we'll be talking to somebody who actually is in the thick of it. It won't be little rumors or little news articles. Somebody who's actually dealing with AI in medicine and he's been doing it for a while. Um, it's Dr. Puneet Seth. He's a practicing physician. He's a technologist and an entrepreneur who is currently the chief officer of innovation at TELUS Health. And the way he got involved with TELUS Health is they actually brought up his digital health startup, um, he did an EMR, a very forward-facing EMR, uh, actually called Input Health, and tell us bottom out. Uh, but I think in 2020, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and our chief medical director of innovation. Chief medical director. I apologize. Chief medical innovations. So, Dr. Seth, and also just just to, to say, I, Dr. Seth is a very good friend of mine. But Dr. Seth, thank you for your time today. I do want to ask a couple of just introductory questions. So how did you, so obviously you were in DMR space and Input Health had this vision of trying to, trying to really innovate how we do health, how we approach patients, really make things easier. I remember the, the big innovation at the time, and this was a while back that you guys came up with that, is being able to send questionnaires to the patient beforehand, before actually them seeing the doctor, which, which was to me, it was mind mind blowing when you guys talked about it many years ago. But how did you get from that to doing AI or looking into AI in medicine? Absolutely. So first and foremost, thanks so much, Dimitri, for for having me here. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, it's funny actually thinking about the last time we did a podcast. Uh, you know, it was would have been like almost a decade ago when we were actually working on a podcast together. So this is uh, it's great to kind of kind of come full circle. Ten year anniversary. Exactly, exactly. Ten, 10 years. Um, so, yeah. So I, in terms of your question, um, you know, the the idea behind Input Health, which, uh, you know, uh, co-founders, uh, Dr. Damon Ramsey, Sean Jung, um, whom I joined back in 2013, uh, our vision really was to be able to, to bring the patient back to the center uh, of care delivery. So you think about how um, we traditionally look at healthcare delivery, especially in the context of the health record, you think of this idea of, you know, uh, a doctor facing a computer, or, you know, looking at a medical record and then selectively collecting information and sharing information back with that patient. But as you know, health, health isn't just something that happens in those brief visits where you're in front of a healthcare provider. Health is an experience that we have that's dynamic, it's fluid, it's changing at all times. Yet we only get these brief kind of glimmers of a person's health um, when they're actually in front of a healthcare provider. So the, the, the core idea was, what if you knew how a person was doing, uh, how your patient is doing um, before you saw them, between visits, after the visit? And how would that influence your clinical decision-making? How would that potentially make the visit more efficient? How would that actually allow the provider to possibly become uh, be able to focus more on the therapeutic element of that relationship. Um, so that was really the idea of, uh, of input health, you know, inputting the, the, the patient back into uh, into the, the healthcare delivery process and letting them become an active driver of their own care. 
Um, you know, we, we started off actually not uh, as a health record company, but rather as a patient engagement company. As you mentioned, we focused on this idea of digital health questionnaires this was back in 2013. And, uh, you know, much to our, uh, to our chagrin, like uh, we had no interest in originally becoming an electronic health record company, knowing how, um, you know, occupied the spaces, but the, the writing on the wall was clear. There was a demand um, from, you know, from the market, from, from our colleagues for a platform that took a very fresh and different approach towards, uh, towards health records. And, and we felt like we had an opportunity to do that, not driving necessarily purely from the physician's part, but allowing the patient to actually be more of that active participant. Um, and then in terms of, you know, obviously there's a, a long story that happens thereafter, but to, to kind of get to the nuts and bolts of it, you know, we, we joined the TELUS Health team in, in December 2020, where we've had this wonderful opportunity to be able to, to scale this vision, to merge it with the important work that TELUS Health has been doing um, as, you know, the, the large player in the electronic medical record space here in Canada. Um, but fundamentally, uh, you know, health records are positioned uh, in a very interesting place when it comes to the conversation of utilizing AI in healthcare, which is really that, you know, this is the, the focus, you know, the main corpus of health information, if you will, certainly not the, the, the only source of health information, but a one that drives a lot of current day clinical decision making. So it's very natural for AI to be uh, embedded and as an extension of that, um, you know, which we'll obviously talk about a little bit um, more in detail as we go through this conversation. And so, so I guess we need to get to some definitions, uh, specifically reg regarding AI. But when did AI become a? When did you feel like the the tides turned in terms of AI in medicine? Like, was it this year? Because because AI sort of came in out of nowhere. For me, obviously, for you, probably not around this year, right? But was this something that was brewing for a while? Yeah, yeah. So you know, it, it, that, that's a great question, and you know, the, the reality is that you know, AI as a obviously as a concept and entity is you know dates back to you know the '60s and '70s, um, and so it, it's certainly not something new in the field of of computer science. Uh, it's meant some obviously very different things, and. And arguably, many people have um, have thought of you know artificial intelligence as something, at least in the in the context of what we're we're calling you know um, uh, artificial intelligence. That you might think of, let's say, for example, in pop culture, where computers completely, you know, let's say, even conscious, autonomous, and able to do these actions. We we thought that the dramatic leaps that would happen in AI would happen perhaps further down the road. But a lot of very basic work, which is building the the core models that allow different specific functions to take place have been evolving over, over decades. In healthcare specifically, you know, it's been going on for uh, you know, 10, 15 plus years, um, wow. even dating back, let's say, you know, a classic example might be IBM Watson, um, you know, where they were trying to, to utilize these specific algorithms um, to be able to, to drive things like clinical decision-making for, let's say, oncology. Um, you know, it was early at that time, the, the models and tools uh, that were being used at the time perhaps were not able to meet uh, the promise, perhaps, of what people expected them to do. So as a result, these things kind of remained in the research and on the fringes. But fundamentally, you know, what artificial intelligence is, it's really a field of computer science. These are computer programs uh, right, that have sophisticated capabilities of carrying out specific and certain functions. 
um, you know, we we almost uh, mystify them by giving them the name of AI, but it it is ultimately an advanced form of, of a computer application. Um, and I I think in terms of when things really hit mainstream and perhaps when everyone kind of had that, you know, uh, wow moment, um, I, I think it would be safe to say that you know, uh, you know, November twenty twenty two last year. Uh, when OpenAI made ChatGPT publicly available, I think that's the first time people could really touch and feel um, AI from you know as a consumer and and you know uh, for free initially at least, um, and be amazed at what it was capable of doing. And you know those leaps came as a result of significant um, gains and significant research developments that had taken place uh, relating to newer models, newer technologies associated with the AI. Yeah, and, and I feel that I feel like those leaps are happening every week. It's just it's just exponential, I think. Uh, so so let's go back to some definitions here. I was talking to you about this a couple of days ago because obviously I'm a complete newbie when it comes to AI and I shouldn't be because again I believe that this is a really important knowledge base for all doctors, residents as well. Maybe we can talk about this a bit later. Yeah. You were saying Specifically, when it comes to medicine, we're dealing with generative AI. Is that correct? Can you, can you, well, first of all, is that correct? Yeah, so gen, gen, absolutely. So generative AI is, yeah. is one of the types um, or, of AI that, are, that is being utilized. And perhaps it's the one with the significant amount of attention over the course of the last, you know, eight months or so. Are you able to try and define what that 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 is what is generative AI exactly? You explained it to me two days ago, and I cannot. I sort of think I understand, but if you don't mind, no, for sure. So generative AI, you know, simply put, um, is a type of AI. It's a category, and obviously, there's different types of AI. You can different types of AI you can think of as different software programs, different algorithms, if you will. It's a type. It's a type of AI um, that's able to produce or generate um, output like text audio, video, images, for example, um, based on a prompt that's provided by the user. So the user puts in some type of the prompt, uh, most commonly, again, in terms of what people are used to seeing, a text prompt, let's say, and it's able to produce these outputs. Um, that's probably the, the easiest definition of it. Um, and you know the, the, the other term that people kind of often use in the context of generative AI is, of course, large language models or LLMs. And LLMs are a specific type of um, AI model that falls in the generative AI category that is able to um, to carry out these functions. Okay. Now you had mentioned something about probability as well. Like it, it uses probabilities to figure out what the most probable answer is. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So the the question of how it works ultimately is is one of of, of statistics and, and mathematics. So fundamentally, what happens with um, with large language models, which is again a type of generative AI, is that you know you take huge amounts of information, um, and and, you know, and and by huge amounts of information, we're talking about you know obviously you know in the case of a lot of these tools, tens of billions of, of data points of parameters, if you will, that are coming based on consumed knowledge from the web, uh, knowledge from other databases, uh, knowledge from, from books that's, that's been converted to a consumable format, and then to, then to train these algorithms. Um, and when these algorithms are trained, they 
they, they deeply understand patterns and associations that are happening in these vast amount of information. So how a prompt actually works in the context of, of, of generative AI is that it's, it's effectively predicting what the best output would be on, on a, you know, on a bit by bit level based on an input that's coming. So what it's really trying to do is just, uh, you know, probabilistically guess based on patterns that it, it's, it's learned that's been pre-trained on what the next response should be. And all of this happens on, on a reward basis. So, um, you know, internally within these tools, there's this idea of wanting to get the highest possible reward and it keeps trying until it's able to achieve that. So there's an incredible amount of computing power that's needed to do this so fast that it just seems like it's magic, right? You type something in and you get something out and it seems to know it. It doesn't actually know these things at all. It's, it's giving, it's probabilistically just putting things together based on patterns. And, and that impresses us because this is happening at an incredible scale. It's interesting, and, and again, maybe can push back if I'm wrong. If I'm, uh, but but it's sort of how we give a diagnosis, right? It's it's about you. You have this list of symptoms. You have that's the input, and then you have the, your own probabilities in your head. You calculate them, and then you have the output. Um, so that's yeah. that's quite interesting, actually. At, 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 you know, and and that's the interesting part, right? At a, a much more simplistic level, uh, as human as humans, we you know we perform those same functions in a um, sophisticated but very narrow way, right? Um, you know, and uh, it, it raises a really interesting point as well around the difference in how we think versus how you know these tools quote unquote think. Um, the idea of human understanding and the nuance that that as humans we have is not what we're what's being recreated with generative AI. Generative AI again is just probabilistically guessing things based on patterns. It doesn't actually necessarily understand, at least at this point in time. And that's an important differentiation and, and something that you know the illusion of understanding can be apparent to the user because of how great a job it does in these responses. Right. But yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've had conversations with ChatGPT and it's it's uncanny. Let's talk a bit about the practical aspects of this because you know you you read the news and it's all the sensationalist things like oh you know ChatGPT or which whichever AI has passed the MCAT exam it's it's able to reason better than residents. Um, even some people are thinking it's going to replace doctors. It, it might, it might, but but currently, uh, Panit. What are some of the practical aspects of it currently that you think will be quite helpful to the medical profession, especially given what's happening in Canada and given the issues we're having right now with the uh, with our healthcare system? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And, you know, to touch on that point regarding, you know, generative AI passing uh, the MCATs and, you know, demonstrating empathy and, and uh, you know, through these different studies, I think it's important to recognize that Many of those things are are, you know, are quite sensational, um, and they represent an important demonstration of the capability of gener generative AI. But it misses the mark in terms of the actual opportunity. And, and kind of going to your point, what is the practical utility of this ultimately in healthcare delivery? Um, I recently uh, met a uh, economist, Eric Bernolfsson. I may have pronounced his name wrong. He's from the Stanford Institute of Human-Centered AI. I saw him at a conference a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, he talked about this idea of the, the Turing trap, you know, in reference to the fact that we tend to think about AI in terms of 
um, uh, its capability relative to human-like intelligence. So, you know, our computer is going to be smarter than humans. Uh, and therefore, you know, we historically we measure, measure things on the basis of the Turing test. And his argument is that this, again, misses the mark because we, we try to compare, uh, you know, apples to apples in the, in the context of capability. But the reality is, is that, you know, the real opportunity is uh, generative AI and AI in general being able to do things that humans cannot do alone. So it's more about increasing the size of the pie rather than kind of saying, you know, automate what a doctor does or, you know, uh, replace these actions that a doctor is doing. Uh, I think that's, that, that's actually thinking about things way too small. Um, and but when you look at how this rolls out practically over the course of the next kind of months, months, years, you know, the low-hanging fruit is, of course, thinking about things that have the least amount of risk to patients, right, um, and that can quickly produce value to a healthcare organization. The classic thing might be documentation. You know, uh, needless to say, you're not going to find too many <laughs> family docs, colleagues that uh, say my favorite part of the day is documenting everything that I've done, right? Um, it's unfortunately a reality of what we have to do, um, but it's not necessarily, you know, the, the pinnacle of our training and perhaps the most exciting part of the work we do, but it's important nonetheless to happen. So generative AI, um, which, you know, I like to think of it almost as a Swiss army knife for language. You know, you're able to take in these, you know, inputs, these prompts, and you're able to produce a wide variety of language outputs. And th there's a tremendous opportunity here to be able to, to look at the conversations, the context, the information that exists around a person's visit or health record, and being able to summate that into, uh, into a note. Um, that, that's already happening. There's obviously a, a wide number of companies uh, in the Canadian, American, global landscape that are doing this, and they're actually doing this impressively well. I've been, uh, you know, validating and experimenting uh, with this technology in my own practice over the last, um, you know, eight months or so. And quite honestly, every time I go into clinic, it, these tools get a little bit better. Um, and I see the low-hanging fruit being, you know, removing some of the, the mundane and task-oriented elements of the human experience, as particularly in relation to kind of these transactional administrative functions in clinical practice liberating both administrative staff and physicians to be able to focus more on the higher order functions of um, understanding the patient, developing the connection, uh, getting talking a little bit more deeply about therapeutic options, perhaps uh, you know, for front-end staff, not feeling so overwhelmed with you know, 50 calls or 50 tasks at once and perhaps being able to, uh, to manage their pace a little bit better uh, and, uh, and uh, become driven by other activities. Um, but over time, and that's the short term. Over time, I think we really begin to open, you know, open the the uh, the equation to how big we can make this pie, and what we can actually accomplish. Because um, the reality is that these tools can help us perform, potentially help us perform things that are far beyond what we can imagine an individual physician or a team of physicians even being able to do. And that part's really exciting for what it means for people's health. Yeah, it, and I like I like that you said it's about enhancing, not replacing. It's about enhancement. It's about helping, and e even even you know I, I'll be I'll be honest here. I'll be I'll be I'll be honest that writing notes I hate it. It's very important. It's extremely important, but it's 
I feel it takes attention away from the patient when I'm typing and looking at my screen. doesn't matter how I put the screens in front of me. My eyes are always going to be on the screen half the time. So having this option, which we talked about a couple of days ago, and that, it blew my mind. I think, again, I, I guess you have to study it, but I have a feeling that it will help a lot, both doctors and quite frankly, mental health for doctors. Because Absolutely. I, 100%, you know, we talk about mental health burnout. Those notes, burn, personally, they burn me out. I don't know about you, but they burn me out. I hate, I hate writing them. I, I do, right? They have to. But also patients, because you can look them in the eye. Yeah, you, you can do stuff that, you, that we did like 100 years ago, actually look at a patient and go get those subtle cues and, and figure things out. Um, I think that's yeah. really enhancing things. Yeah, and, and I think you, you touched on a really important note here because people often ask me, okay, well, how much time have you saved as a result of um, you know, using an ambient scribe in your, in your clinical practice? And, you know, and the reality is like, I don't even think about it in the context of time because my goal isn't necessarily to be like, oh yeah, and then I can see you know, more and more patients or I can do more things. Uh, yes, it has indeed saved some time. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm perhaps a little bit of an outlier in that I've, I've really geeked out in terms of how efficient I can make my documentation in general. So at baseline, I, I don't think I was spending too, too much time documenting and I was using a variety of tools to help me do that. Nonetheless, it has, it has shaved some time off, you know, perhaps somewhere in the realm of 30 to 40, 45 seconds for me. Um, and, and again, that's with me not having to spend too much time documenting, but the more important thing that I think I've experienced as a result of using this is during those visits when I do have an ambient scribe kind of, again, co-piloting with me in the context of the clinical encounter, I'm a lot less worried about looking at, at, at my EMR. And I'm a lot less worried about, the, about having to type something. I, I know we all think we're fantastic multitaskers, but the reality is we're not. Human beings can only really properly focus on one thing at a time. And however subtle that diversion may be in your attention, it is a diversion to have to think about your note um, concurrently to having to think about the patient. And I, I just find I'm, I'm more present. I, I find I'm a little bit more relaxed. I, I can feel it in my shoulders. I'm looking at the patient more. And quite honestly, um, I think patients also, you know, and, and this and this is actually work that I'm, I'm currently um, in the midst of setting up some um, some studies to, to validate, which is how do patients feel in the context of visits where they have a physician using an ambient scribe? So it's not just about, again, the physician outcomes, but Will a patient actually perceive that their physician was more present? Did they feel like they would they actually got more out of that? And it'd be really interesting to compare that to encounters with that same physician before you know, right. the use of the scribe. So I think there's there's that intangible thing, um, which is important because you know burnout is is a very real thing. I think the uh, the current mental state of the healthcare providers and healthcare human human resource staff as well is um, uh, is very tenuous right now. And um, anything that we can do to meaningfully move the needle towards people being able to be more satisfied, be more relaxed, be be able to be extract more contentment from the work, I think uh, that, that's a huge one. Yeah, I was even uh, some more examples. I was looking at, I think you sent me a link to this, is it TikTok or Instagram of this doctor who had shown how 
how he could um, ask the AI to write a letter for insurance so they get coverage yeah. for medication. Because at the end of the day, you're, you're copy-pasting that letter anyways. You just change a couple of things. But but that was really amazing. I hate doing those things. They're very necessary, and I know why insurance companies need them. I'm not I'm not saying that they don't, but but I don't like doing them. Or even yeah. uh, filling out forms, like, uh, you know, medical forms. I, I can see that being used as well. And I'm almost will say that I think that's where AI can be better because I think eventually it, it can scour the the chart and get specifically the details that are needed. Because when you do it yourself, unless you want to spend hours and hours, you're not going to put everything in, right? Yeah, and 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 uh, you know, and to go back to that point, absolutely. There's a rheumatologist who's now become uh, now a bit of a, a, a TikTok Instagram influencer who, uh, based in Florida, who, who kind of initially began posting his forays into how he was utilizing um, uh, ChatGPT to, to automate some functions of his work. And I think that's a good example. You know, I, I call that the one-off scenarios. There's there's kind of you know, to me, the the, the two low-hanging fruit from a clinical perspective are really automating the, the mm-hmm. clinical note and then handling these one-off notes that, that are required because the reality is most people um, who have uh, any you know any degree of maturity in their use of an EMR will usually have had basic templates to take care of the basic situations right like a sick note a physio note that doesn't take a lot of time to do hopefully uh, you know if you're using a good health record system that should be pretty straightforward um, but um, it's those other scenarios where you need to narrate something that's outside of that typical, the, the typical common scenarios, the, the one-offs. An example might be like in, in my own practice, there's somebody that needed um, some justification, some further justification as to why, you know, their medical issue was causing further prolonged time off work. And that, that was a, uh, a supportive letter that I needed to provide. And uh, that's a perfect scenario in which you can, you can take, a, you know, two or three paragraphs and you can quickly get the, the need of that put in through utilizing uh, generative AI. The important caveat, obviously being here, and, I, and I, I have to say this since people are listening to it, is that, you know, let's not forget, or I think people need to be reminded that anything you're putting into um, a generative AI tool effectively can be consumed by that company. So anything you're putting into ChatGPT, ChatGPT is using. Right. So, so you don't want... Um, Obvious identifiable information to be going in. So, you, so if you are using something alongside, you you can have, you can have just a, a generic like you know, explain, provide a, a you know a note on why you know somebody who might be having um, migraines might need some additional time off work, for example. Keep it completely generic, um, and then of course do your due diligence and read what, what's coming out on the other end. Because, and and that's where I think there's another risk, which is. People can be vigilant at first, and I've, I've seen even myself drift over time in terms right. of how I look at the notes that are being produced by and scribe. You get a little bit more confident that they, they're doing a good job, but every, one, every once in a while, you do get reminded that this is a work in progress, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, you're, you're liable for what you're putting down. So read what's coming out the other end, um, and that, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. Yeah, it's 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 your signature at the bottom, not not Judge BT. So that that's yeah. a very good point, and uh, it's it's something that needs to be it needs to be kept in mind. Of, I guess one last thing I wanted to ask you about before going towards the more big, big picture things in the future is um, just in terms of helping with with diagnosis. So I know that you sent again. You sent me this was a couple of months ago. I'm sure it's it's much improved. A link to Glass AI. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just mentioning this because that's what you said. I'm sure there's many other options. And I found it really interesting because, you know, you, you put a, a prompt, uh, say, the, I don't know, 24-year-old man coming in with burning when they go to the washroom. Um, give them some more uh, data there, no fever, so on and so forth, no hematuria. And then uh, it generates, I think, five or six possible diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been trying it for a couple of, of my patients. And I think at least the version I tried it, it's pretty accurate. My, my question mm-hmm. to you is, first of all, how is, because you said this AI is being taught, like mm-hmm. it's, it gets a reward when it's right. So mm-hmm. how does that work? Is, is it being taught by other doctors? How's the teaching process for, for this diagnostic AI actually work? Yeah. So, um, and I, I can't speak specifically to how you know glass AI might be Fair doing enough. their own their own kind of tweaking and um, and you know their own approach to reinforcement learning. But the idea is that ultimately uh, these tools are performing you know uh, interestingly very you know very well in the context of clinical decision support. Let's say producing a differential diagnosis, um, but these are still experimental slash research applications right now. So. Um, the, they need to be validated. Um, and I think it's also a question of how things actually get adjusted. So the one of the concepts that people often bring up is this idea of explainability, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which mm-hmm. right now, uh, generative AI doesn't do very well. And as a brief definition to that, you know, it's if you're, if you're telling me this is an output for something, explain to me why, why you're saying that. Um, and it can it can do that at a very superficial level, but it doesn't. You don't necessarily always understand how it's driving what it's driving, and that part is really important because you want transparency. You don't want just to be told. I think it's something. I think the diagnosis is scleroderma, and I can't really explain why or right. explain explain the thought process for how that's happening. Now, these models are, for example, GPT four is getting much better at being able to do that. MedPom from MedPom two from Google is also making very significant headways as a, uh, a medically specific, fine-tuned, large language model. Um, and I, I think that um, it, the, the opportunity here is really to be able to aid in how you understand and how you can ensure that you know, things aren't falling through the cracks. Um, the problem is right now, beyond the fact that there's this validation needed and there's a need for explainability, these things all exist outside of your clinical interface. So there's only so many, um, you know, extra, extra, extra windows you can open and, and, you know, extra things you can do beyond that, that serve a purpose beyond just being interesting. Ultimately, all these things need to be integrated into an experience. And, and I think that's where the roadmap for health records, health record systems for EMRs uh, is going to be interesting because all of these things kind of converge. Um, and that converges on this entity, which is the EMR, or we can even say the health record-like concept um, that's going to evolve in the future. I, mean, I think that's the idea of integration is very exciting to me. And I think that I'm hoping that's the future. It is the future, as you're saying. I, I guess a, a question here is, as, as you know, medicine is very conservative and takes, I mean, we're still using faxes, right? Like, mm-hmm. is is there, do you feel like, although COVID pushed things along, I like in leaps and bounds, it, it had to. But do you feel like there's a lot of sort of uh, push to integrate these things? Like, do, do you feel there's a will there for medical professionals, governments to to try and push EMRs and AI together? 
or do you feel like there's a lot of resistance still? Oh, I mean, I, I think I think we we've come at a, at an impasse. I, I, I think the, the current status quo is not maintainable. Um, obviously, we're we're seeing, you know, I think we're actively seeing um, very concerning signs of parts of the of, of our healthcare system in Canada begin to to uh, to come undone, particularly in primary care. Mm-hmm. You're seeing colleagues leaving. Um, you're seeing adverse outcomes happen for patients that. You're seeing uh, missed opportunities for preventative health. You're seeing people having to uh, exit uh, the public healthcare system for for basic things. Have, often having to resort to um, uh, you know medical tourism or uh, or other uh, other routes to be able to access things that are really basic parts uh, of public healthcare. Um, and I, I don't think there's any turning back. I think we at this point um, there's there is no option other than to to find solutions that. Uh, are in the interest of, of of people's health and the interest of of protecting access to care for um, for Canadians. And to finish off, yeah, I can talk to you for hours, but my editor's gonna gonna eat my guts. But to finish off, two two, two questions, and one of mm-hmm. them is is about vision because I feel like uh, primary care lacks vision right now, and, and that that's really demoralizing. But let's say we're talking about ten to twenty years from now. Mm-hmm. What is your vision of how an EMR with, or I guess, what is your vision of medicine using this technology? Just give me an example. You don't have to be very, we could be broad or specific, but one example, 20 years from now, what do you want to see? Yeah, well, I I, I might roll that back from 20, because 20 years, I'll be honest with you, is uh, is beyond uh, fathomable. <laughs> Five to 10. <laughs> I, I feel like even science science fiction uh, has not yet <laughs> been able to understand That's what 20 true. years might That's look true. like, especially where we are. But but uh, I mean, I'm, the question fundamentally really is, what what is the, um, the, the perhaps not so distant future possibly hold um, in terms of, you know, uh, the utilization of these technologies in practice? And, um, you know, there's uh, a well-known um, thought leader, um, venture capitalist from the Bay Area, Vinod Kosla from Kosla Ventures, uh, who was equipped with saying, um, you know, um, the doctors of the future will be trained at, you know, the UCLA School of Arts, not the Stanford School of Medicine, or something to that effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what he was trying to get at is the fact that um, in the future, the role of the human being is not going to be to be the role of the clinician is not going to be to be the sole diagnostician. Um, it's going to be the person who's the expert communicator, the expert at empathy, the expert at understanding the interests of the person uh, of the patient and helping them navigate um, what's in, what's what's in front of them. Mm-hmm. And you can almost imagine AI in this context being the the, the 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 brain, if you will, <laughs> and so it's uh, you know we, we talk about this concept of of kind of co-pilot, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, but you know this this co-pilot um, is going to advance in its capabilities over time, and I think we'll we'll learn to evolve and to grow and to work with this co-pilot, uh, feeding off both its its incredible ability to consume and digest the latest research that was published within the last five milliseconds, right? <laughs> and to be able to understand um, every single possible molecular piece of information available regarding, you know, you know your, your microbiome, your proteome, your metabolome, 
um, your your digital exhaust from all everything that you've ever done online, um, your um, uh, your your genome, and be able to produce probabilistic and tailored decisions regarding what's what's ultimately best for you. And that sounds kind of daunting, and you don't necessarily want to hear that from a computer. Uh, and you also want to know that there is somebody who's able to help you navigate that. Um, so I, I think that's where that's where the, the clinician becomes this really important interface between you know, the brain, if you will, um, and and humans and and and, and patients. And, and I think what's what's going to be interesting about this is the reality is you still do need humans that understand enough of they still need to be, you know, we'll still need doctors to be medical experts and we'll still need healthcare providers to have their deep areas of domain knowledge, but it'll have to, ultimately we will not be able to surpass the medical knowledge that will be able to exist and the medical reasoning capability that will be able to exist in these entities, but we'll have to know it well enough and understand it um, with enough uh, intention to be able to effectively work with it. Um and I, I think that's that's interesting. And, and you know, I, and uh, uh, just really briefly, like I recently published a paper in JMIR Medical Education that talked about how data science and AI needs to be part of medical education. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's true not just for you know the doctors and training for the future, but for people in practice right now, for other health healthcare providers, we really need to have a cold hard look at our training people. And the skills of knowledge that they have and what needs are going to be. And you're right. And for that, you need to have a vision. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. That was my second question. I guess you read my mind, but what do we, again, I'm, I'm with McGill. I see medical students, hey, residents, but how do we get them ready for this? I guess it's what do we have to do? Because it's, it's a big change. It's coming. Mm-hmm. There's no way to stop it. So how do we help? I mean, how do we help ourselves? How do I help myself as well? How do I learn about this? Yeah, so so that's a fantastic question. And I think um, there's there's two components to it. Um, one is, you know, kind of traditional paths of being able to acquire some information. So, you know, the good thing is uh, medical schools, universities uh, do have um, some pieces and opportunities to learn about health informatics or sometimes there's optional days to learn about AI and so forth, to take, take advantage of, you know, to the students out there, take advantage of those, mm-hmm. uh, to the clinicians in practice, take advantage and ask for um, there to be CME and education around how do we integrate you know, AI into primary care? How do we integrate um, these tools into healthcare delivery in the hospital in a community-based setting? Ask, mm-hmm. uh, ask for those, you know, demand, <laughs> demand those from um, your medical associations, from your colleges, from your universities, um, so that this becomes part of what's available. I mean, that, and that, you know, that's obviously uh, going to be a little bit of a longer term play, perhaps, and you can leverage some of what's there. But the reality is that majority of what you need to know is already out there. Um, and I think uh, we, you know, as um, as we all accept the idea of, you know, um, lifelong learning, continuing education. I think a lot of this continuing education is going to need to be self-driven. Um, and a lot of that comes through um, speaking to colleagues, creating net- networks, um, following great uh, thought leaders in the space online um, who are actively you know, writing, speaking about this, um, and, um, and 
taking the opportunity to, to edu- educate yourself and ultimately also to, to be willing to, to faithfully and, and, and ethically tinker, to use these things in your own practice. Think about what that means. Uh, have those conversations with patients. Um, participate in the change as opposed to, you know, pretending that it's not happening or, or waiting for someone to, to tell you exactly what to do because that's not going to be the case. Right. And, and again, we've talked about some practical uses, just the, the charting, the documentation, which is accessible to everybody right now, as, as long as you know the limitations. But, but that, that's great. I, um, I really appreciate your time. And, and this has been very interesting. And um, I would, you are one of the, I, I feel like you're one of the top leaders when it comes to medicine and AI. And I do believe you publish on Medium. Is that correct? Do you publish anywhere else? Yeah, I, um, I, I'm actively posting on uh, Twitter, Medium, LinkedIn. Um, so feel free to uh, to follow me there. There's a number of others. Um, I, I think the space um, that are highly relevant to follow. There's a dark, Dr. Eric Topol um, from the States, who's uh, a you know, very well-recognized global thought leader in the space. Dr. Daniel Kraft, um, also from the States. Um, uh, the medical futurist, Dr. Uh, Berkline Mesco, he, he's um, always kind of uh, uh, producing some interesting content regarding what's happening in this space. So keep keep an eye out for what's what's out there. I'm taking notes, and I'm gonna follow. I don't use Twitter, but but I'll find a way to follow all of them because yes, it's 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 very exciting. It's it's scary, but it's it's coming. And I, again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, all the best to you. Thank you, and uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. Excellent.